recently we were closing on a portfolio and one of the tenants of the doctors was concerned about his tax basis that it would really step up because it's a newer price, right? In that jurisdiction, they charge by sale price. And so he's concerned about that and he kind of threatened to hold up the transaction. So, you know, <laughs> it's one of those funny things at the 11th right, hour. Right at the right? end, like yeah. The, the day before we're about to close. So, you know, all the <laughs> things are in motion. A lot of money has been spent and, and you've you got kind of a holdup problem. So I, I you know, had a, a conversation with him. I guess the previous owner hadn't really interacted with him on that basis or at all. And, and so I, we talked and, you know, got to understand his perspective, which is, you know, reasonable. So what I promised and what we're doing is, We've got a very good tax consultant working with him and that property to make sure we get the very best tax treatment. And so it's not as big of a, a hit. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome to this week's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, where I interview David Lin, who is President and Chief Investment Officer of Healthcare MOB REIT at White Oak Healthcare Finance. And this is the first of a two-part episode where we discuss how healthcare real estate being a mission-critical demand-driven asset class helped it retain its value through the pandemic and will have long-term resiliency in the market. So welcome, David. And I hope you enjoy the interview. David, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you. Well, really, it's a pleasure to be here. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about White Oak Healthcare Finance and the healthcare MOB real estate investment trust that you're in charge of? Sure. Yeah. White Oak is a platform, a, primarily a lending platform with a very large presence in healthcare lending. So I, I believe we're the second largest healthcare lender in the nation lending to different aspects of the healthcare industry, including real estate. And I'm an equity vertical on that platform. So we're a private REIT and our focus is on medical office buildings around the country. And do you invest in other healthcare facilities or just MOBs? Pretty much MOBs, but the, the occasional other product type, but 95% is MOBs. And you obviously have a depth of experience to draw from. So how did all of the, your past career experience gear you toward continuing to focus in the healthcare real estate asset class? Well, when I was two years old, I was building little models of hospitals. And from there, it, it, it grew. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> well, there's a long story and a short story, but I'll, I'll give you the shorter story. So in school, I really loved building and I, I studied architecture and engineering and then went on to, to do you know, finance and a, and a doctorate kind of in finance and economics. I guess I started working in development early in my career, developing retail for the Target Corporation, Dayton Hudson Target Corporation. And then from there, I just did more investment development and then went over to Singapore in the late 90s to work for a large regional company. And they had a, a mandate to do medical, medical development and, and acquisition. So that was part of what I did. 
I bought clinics and hospitals around the region, around based in Singapore and investing in countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Burma, Thailand, and would renovate those and bring new tenants. And as part of Singapore's regional push to be a, a regional medical hub, coming back to this country, invested in medical facilities at my firms at ING and Clarion Partners. So we, we invested in medical office buildings and hospitals. And then at Cole, we invested a fair amount in MOBs and, and biotech, biosides, and we took that company public and then started my own firm in 2014 called Everest Healthcare Properties, really with a sole focus on MOBs. What, what I felt was that that format, the MOB format, was becoming you know, kind of the de facto default physical delivery mechanism, if you will. Things were migrating from the hospital, the very centralized urban hospital, to this outpatient, more extensible format that was, you know, seemed to be becoming healthcare infrastructure, if you will. So very big, very important, mission critical. And I think it's a cool sector too. I mean, working with doctors and you know, healthcare provider, providers in general. So I've invested and developed medical buildings for, for some time and then started my own small private equity firm with a focus on MOBs. But I, I really feel like it's, it's healthcare infrastructure. It's a very, I think, a nifty asset class because you know, you're part of the healthcare delivery equation which is about helping people, investing in communities. It, it, it's totally ESG, you know, and, and I like that. And the doctors and hospitals that the tenants you interact with are, are, you know, pretty amazing and highly accomplished and, and doing good works. And, and then the, the technology is also pretty cool. You know, more and more over the years, I've seen this capital intensity in the MOB format because you, you need to do it. You know, you need to be competitive. You need to you know, deliver the latest and, and greatest procedure, technology, whatever it happens to be, but, you know, Da Vinci machine or laser eye machine or an MRI machine, really, really cool stuff. For all those reasons, I, I think it was a good sector. I think just Willie Sutton was a famous bank robber in the early 1930s and was asked, well, why do you rob banks? Said, well, that's where the money is. And so in real estate, it's like, why do you do that, this or that sector? Usually demand should be a part of that answer, right? Because there's just big and growing demand in healthcare. I'm a big believer in demographics and, you know, we're getting older. And you don't get healthier when you get older. So it's just a very good supply and demand equation too. Yeah, it's always going to be a need. It's a purpose-based development, I think, a real estate development. You know, people, people need to, are always going to need healthcare services, even right. if it's for wellness and obviously more severe stuff. Or plastic surgery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As we right. get older. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, it's mission critical, but it's also... The services that are being offered are expanding too, right? When you think about it, medical care delivery 30, 40 years ago, we don't have some of the things that we have now, we, we, we couldn't even imagine back then, right? Yeah. I mean, look at certain types of surgery where you don't have to go into the rib cage, right? Non-invasive right. surgery where you can go up through an artery. I mean, that was unimaginable, right? That's a new service. Many, many things. So I think as we mature as a society... And as we, you know, encounter new maladies and illnesses like like COVID, put that on the list of of things you probably need to think about and 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 go to a healthcare provider for, right? Right. Hopefully, there'll be a little more people going for health and wellness checks, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a part of the trend too. I think people have become more proactive about their health, and and everything indicates that's that's good for patients. It's good for society. It's good for providers. Right. If you know of a problem in advance and can work on it in in advance, as opposed to at the near the end, yeah. when it becomes more difficult, 
and almost irreversible, then you're better off, right? You're, so, so yeah, I think that's been a part of it. And I think technology has really helped make it make it easier over the years. You know, making appointments and now you know telehealth. But I still think you'll always need that physical component to interact and address, examine all the things you have to do in in person for healthcare delivery, right? It, it, it's not like buying shoes, right? Right. Online, exactly. you've got to actually be there to be examined, and and procedures can't happen on your avatar, right? It's got to happen on your physical body. <laughs> I'd like that though. I know. You know. Send my avatar for that operation. I, <laughs> exactly. I need a new I, brain. I don't need to recover. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's another thing too, is that, you know, surgeries are being able, I mean, used to have to go to the hospital for surgeries. And now the hospital's like, you know, we just want the most severe surgeries and everything else, you know, we want out right. of the hospital. That's a, that's a great point. There's been a migration of services, things that formerly were very acute, you know, more and more have been done at the MOB level. And I'm, I'm amazed, you know, open heart surgery, many types of surgery, brain surgery, knee surgery, back surgery, eye surgery. So almost anything at this point. And that yeah. technology has become much more extensible, right? It's been migrating, become cheaper, more flexible, you know, so it's been easier for doctors to buy and, and put that into their, their operating environments at the MOB, in the MOB environment. So it used to be, for example, you know, let's say 30 years ago, an MRI machine was very big, very expensive. There's kind of one per hospital, maybe even one per city. Now there are many, many options, much cheaper, and many MOBs have them now, you know, or, or some form of that. And that's true. This, it's been this product life cycle and product adoption cycle where things start off is really big, really expensive, and they get cheaper and then pushed out to the, the MOBs. Exactly. Do you see a lot of similarities in the U.S. healthcare real estate market as you, you did in Singapore? Is it similar or is it vastly different? No, Singapore, I do. I mean, they, they do have MOBs as a, as a building type there. They do. But that's, that's unusual. So the MOB trend is still emerging through much of the world. And I think it'll follow the U.S., but there aren't too many countries. It's pretty much in most, in most parts of the world, the, the traditional you know, big urban hospital model and, and not too many MOBs. And so White Oak Healthcare Finance is headquartered in San Francisco with several offices, but the healthcare MOB REIT, where do you guys focus your acquisition efforts geographically? You know, the feature, which is good, attractive of the space is that people need healthcare everywhere, right? People get sick everywhere. So, you know, not to be flippant, but almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. there isn't like the top five markets where, you know, people only need healthcare in top five markets. And the other aspect is that most Americans have healthcare insurance, about 90%, right? So, you know, you're subsidized to use medical care. So, you know, we, we like cities that are at least 100,000 in population, but we invest in primary, secondary, and tertiary markets. You know, we like to be near a hospital or, or medical corridor. The other things are, have a lot in common with other real estate asset types. You know, we like good visibility, good access, parking, purpose-built buildings, class A and B. There are literally hundreds of investable markets in this country for well, MOBs. Yeah. And I find your REIT to be interesting in that, you know, some REITs just are institutional only, but you actually have different segregations for the different type of assets. So you're able to expand your investment, I would say, perspective where you can do value add or premium core. They just have to meet certain criteria. And then you, you know, you focus on what exactly that asset type is. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, 
investors want to see that you're you're doing a lot of work, that you're an operator and you're creating value. So, you know, we we do the the spectrum of style, investment style. So from core, core plus value add and and even development. And then when you purchase a physician-owned property, are you guys able to offer you know some physicians ownership in the property or shares in the and the re or or how do you address that if they still want to be an investor? Typically most physicians that that I've encountered want to sell the building and would like a, a sale lease back. So but they'd like to monetize their investment in the building. Sometimes that's you know near retirement where you know they're thinking about leaving retiring. So they'll sell their practice or their share of the practice and they'll sell the building. Sometimes they want to stay and we can, we can accommodate that. We're happy to do that. Sometimes they want to do an upgrade. I'm sure the viewers know what that is. It's a very advantageous tax treatment. It's a way to defer taxes, particularly if you've got a very low base. So we can do that and, and that we convey OP and its operating partnership units, which will be their share of, of the investment. And, and there's a potential for us to go IPO in the future. And, and in that case, those units would transfer into publicly traded shares. Yeah, I don't think anyone has mentioned an UPRE yet, but those are great options for investors that want to stay in, well, and also have some, not have to bear a bunch of capital gains taxes as well. Yeah, uh, who knows if that will last. <laughs> but right now, it's, yeah. it's, it's a great, it's really one of those, probably, I shouldn't call it a loophole, because it isn't, but it's a great avenue to defer taxes. It's a tool. So I'm sure you have several, but I would love to hear a couple of interesting transaction stories that you can share with the audience, either something memorable or interesting that turned out differently than expected. Sure. Well, that's just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing turns out the way that you planned on, the, on going in. <laughs> yeah. Let's say recently we were closing on a portfolio and one of the tenants of the doctors was concerned about his tax basis that it would really step up because it's a newer price, right? In that jurisdiction, they charge by sale price. And so he's concerned about that and he kind of threatened to hold up the transaction. So that's you know, <laughs> one of those funny things at the 11th right, hour. Right at the end, like yeah. The, the day before we're about to close. So you know, all the <laughs> things are in motion. A lot of money has been spent and and you get kind of a hold up problem. So I, I, you know, had a, a conversation with him. I guess the previous owner hadn't really interacted with him on that basis or at all. And, and so I, we talked and, you know, got to understand his perspective, which is, you know, reasonable. So what I promised and what we're doing is we've got a very good tax consultant working with him and that property to make sure we get the very best tax treatment. And so it's not as big of a, a hit, you know, for him. And then also, Told him about how we how we do things, how we manage buildings, how we we're active managers, we're communicative managers, and we develop a plan for the building. And not everybody does that. So a management plan and a capital improvement plan, right? And and I think that kind of was a, a big deciding factor for him that we're we're not just going to sit on the building and, and passively clip coupons, but we're we're going to add real value for you and be very responsive as as your new landlord. But that was really, it's always fun, <laughs> exciting yeah. at the very end. So late nights, and I wound up sending a mobile attorney to his home. And then he, he has two homes and sent it to the other home. And like 10 o'clock by the time they got there, so I got him a bottle of champagne. And, you know, <laughs> I love that was, that. It was fun. So there's, there's a real human dimension to what we do. So that, that's one. Everything's unique. I mean, in private equity real estate, as you know, I mean, there, there's no cookie cutter. I, I wish it were. 
but it, it's a lot of hands-on. It's a lot of nuances. It's a lot of bumps in the road. I should probably think of a deal that I didn't do. There's a large portfolio. I was just trying to underwrite a few years ago, about a billion dollars. So it was a lot of work. Once we got into it, we just really saw that it had some issues and, you know, with vacancy and just some problems. And sometimes the best deal you do is, is the one you don't do. And so we're very happy we didn't do that deal. And, and another company bought it. It really hit their stock price <laughs> because yeah. there's some hidden problems in that portfolio. And I think their stock price went from 40 to, to six within two years of buying that portfolio because they just, it was so much work and, and there were so many issues. So we try not to buy problems. We, we try to buy opportunities. So we tend to be pretty careful in that underwriting phase. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, touring the, I mean, a portfolio like that, I'm sure has some spaces that are being paid on, but are dark. And those are always concerning too. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the thing that really scares me is when you have an empty MOB building and, and, and some people from other sectors might think, well, you have a nice building. It looks really good. It's in a good location. You know, you'll have no problem leasing that up, right? In apartments, for example, if you build a really great class A building in a really good area with good economy, good job growth, you're going to lease that up. Yeah, no problem, particularly in this market. But medical tenants are not that motivated. Their number one motivation is not pecuniary, not money, not the cost of occupancy. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And it's usually a very small part of their, their cost pie, right? It, usually it's below 10%. But they, they think about other factors about, I think the key one is, is business continuity or flip side, business disruption, right? Disrupting your business, moving moving your equipment, confusing your patients, your providers, your partners, getting out of your immediate ecosystem can be a big risk. It, it can be catastrophic in some cases. So never assume you'll, you'll lease up a building through the build it and they will come strategy. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't really work in, in the MFB space. No. And that's before, I think it's been two cycles, but when I first got into the industry, it was everybody with a piece of land that said, oh, let's just, you know, build an MOB and they will come. And it can be the perfect piece of land as far as ingress, egress, visibility. But if it doesn't have a medical ecosystem to draw from, if it's too far away from the hospital, if it doesn't have an anchor tenant or anything, you know, to, to draw other tenants, it will not be successful. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you. So obviously, when COVID came out, I'm sure you got a lot of calls from tenants saying, hey, you know, I need some help. So how did, how did you respond to that? With one word, three times, no, no, and no. The last one being very emphatic. You know, actually, I'm kidding, but we got one call. I mean, that was it. And then he paid on time. So no delinquencies and certainly no defaults at all. So it was pretty amazing. I was surprised. First time, or, you know, for almost all of us through a global pandemic, right? Yeah. There are a few of us who've been we're 110 years old, maybe they're around the Spanish pandemic in, in 1918. But you know, what do you do? I mean, is the world falling apart? I think a lot of medical tenants see the bigger picture. I think most medical tenants are, are in pretty good financial situations, right? Doctors tend to be pretty conservative and prudent about their, their businesses and their finances. So I don't think they're worried too much. And that was the first few months. I think we're all during the headlights. What's going on? The world might end. Oh my goodness. But our tenants didn't panic, you know? So that was like March, April, May, a little bit into June of last year. And then by July, things were waking up. People were going back to the doctor with the new protocols. And every month was better than the last. And then by January, demand was back to where it was. 
a year before. When they qualified for the PPP, and I know a lot, a lot took advantage of that. Yeah, a lot of people did. We get updates on their financials, so you know that helped. But no, I think the MOB space is a great litmus test about how resilient it in fact is. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.